Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the Scripture this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, in a moment we'll be reading verses 5 through 14. As I know the season of Advent is over, but this is our last Advent sermon. So bear with me, but we made it through Advent, right? This is our last Advent sermon, talking about why Jesus came into the world. Why did he have to come? Was it necessary? Do we have to have Christmas? Do we have to have the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The eternal Son of God? We've been saying yes, it is absolutely necessary that Christ came, that He was born. There's expressed reasons why He came. That He came to serve. That He came to shine. That he came to save. And finally this morning, that he came to sanctify. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together out of reverence and respect for God's word. After I read verse 14, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And together we will say in unison, thanks be to God. And we say that because we are thankful for his word. God's given us his word as a gift. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O gracious God, we pursue you through your word, and yet more importantly, at the same time, you pursue us. We open your word and read it, O Lord, and yet... Your word reads us and shows us who we really are and what we really need in the light of your majestic holiness. May your work be done through your word in our hearts and minds today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. About 10 years ago or so, my eldest son was three, two, somewhere in that age range. And I remember sitting at a restaurant with him, and and there he was. He sat there sucking and sucking away on his straw with his little lips pursed around that straw. It was the very first time that he had felt the resistance of trying to suck a milkshake through a straw. And it didn't take long before he set that cup down and at that time expressed what his little heart felt. The only way he knew how. And so he said with disgust and with frustration in his voice, not working. There was one thing he knew. You suck a straw and you get something out of it. So when you suck a straw and get nothing out of it, something's not right. It wasn't working. And how many times, how many times have you felt that same frustration? Felt the maddening effects of something not working? What do you often do when it happens, when something isn't working? You find something that does work, something that will work, something that will get the job done. We're pragmatists at heart. If one thing doesn't work, we'll find something that does work. And when we find that thing that works, what happens? Success, satisfaction, and solace. But what about when you are not in control of whether something works or not? What about when there is nothing that you can do with all of your efforts, with all of your ingenuity, With all of your strength, no matter how hard you try, what happens when you cannot get something to work? Do you give up? 
Do you pronounce it a failure and move on to something that you can control? What about when God tells you to do something that does not work, that will not work? Do you argue with God? Do you wrestle with God? Do you try to provide some counsel to God? God, I think there is something you need to know. This won't work. You don't know people. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know what I know. God, what you are asking appears futile. It won't work. Where are you at this point? Would you say, well, I don't think God would ever do that. I don't think God would ever ask that of me. I could never believe in a God like that. But who defines God? Do you define God? Or does God define God himself? That brings us to a very important question, a question that's at the heart of these verses. What was the point of the sacrificial system for Israel? What was the point of the sacrificial system for Israel? Israel, the nation of Israel, was to offer animal sacrifices, oxen, goats, lambs, on the altar that had been erected first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was one of the central ways that they were commanded to worship God. One of their most prominent days, the Day of Atonement, revolved around making sacrifices before God to atone for their sins. It was meant on focusing on the fact that people needed atonement made for them so that they could be in relationship with God, so that they could draw near to God, so that they could be His people. But what did all of these sacrifices do? If you go back in our text for a moment to verse 3, what does it say? But in these sacrifices, those sacrifices of oxen and goats and lambs, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. What did the sacrifices do? It reminded them of their sin. Reminded them that their sin separated them from the holy God. It reminded them that they were sinners. They were constantly confronted with the truth of their sin. But there was a problem with this reminder, wasn't there? Verse 4, what does that say? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is no small problem. All of those sacrifices, but they did not take away sins. It's not working. What's the point? Why are we doing this? If they can never take away sins, what is it going to take? What is needed? What is possible to take away our sins? And it is here where we as fallen mankind are left completely desperate. How am I going to get to God? I see these sacrifices, I make these sacrifices, and I'm only reminded of my sin. They only serve to show the great chasm that is between me and God. They only highlight God's utter and absolute holiness and my miserable and deplorable sinfulness. Something more is needed, and that is why Jesus Christ came into the world, to sanctify ruined, desperate sinners. What does that word mean, sanctify? 
It means to be made holy. How is it that sinners would ever be able to stand in the presence of the holy God? It's only if they are made holy, sanctified. We could also say that being made holy, ones are set apart, consecrated to God, devoted to God. There's a sense of being cleansed, of being cleaned, completely cleaned. And with that is this sense of being made perfect. We cannot and must not escape the moral nature of sanctification because to be sanctified is to be made perfect. And it's that word that causes great tension in our lives because we know ourselves. How can it be? Perfection? Our great tension comes from how we think about sanctification because we think of it in terms of what we do, how we clean ourselves up, how we might strive for perfection or for greater morality or holiness. But this text reframes our whole way of thinking because it teaches us that Jesus Christ came into the world to sanctify sinners. So what is it that we need to know from these Verses that will have an impact upon our lives and upon our understanding of what Jesus came to do, namely to sanctify. You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. But number one, Jesus coming to sanctify accomplishes the will of God. Jesus coming to sanctify accomplishes the will of God. Think about it for a moment. Drawing our minds to those goats Lambs, bulls, led to the altar of God. They were unsuspecting victims. They didn't know what was about to happen to them. They went, led to the altar, but they weren't necessarily willing sacrifices. How different it is with Christ. He was willing. He knew what he was doing. And what was he doing? He was accomplishing the will of God. This is highlighted in this quotation of Psalm 40 that Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews has here for us. And notice how the writer of Hebrews puts these words of Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus Christ. What does this tell us about how the author was reading Psalm 40? He was reading it like, This is what Jesus was saying. This is what the messianic king was saying with his life. And these words give us the vantage point of God himself. Sacrifices and offerings God did not desire. Burnt offering and sin offerings God took no pleasure in these. Wait a second. Didn't God command those things? Didn't he require these sacrifices to be made? The problem is the same problem that can be in the heart of man, that can be in the heart of you and me even now. All of the religious activity, all of the actions taken, every sacrifice could have been made, but completely missed the intention behind the action. The thought was, if we just do the action, if we just take the step, then God will be pleased, then he will be happy with us, then everything will be okay. Then we will have cleansed ourselves up enough to be acceptable in God's sight, right? And how is that even in our own day similar? 
We think we can do all of these activities, all of these religious activities, and that somehow that makes us acceptable to stand before the holy God. We will say on that day, look at all the sacrifices I made. Look at how many goats I killed. Look how many oxen were sacrificed. Look at how much I did. And Jesus says all of these sacrifices did nothing for God. I mean, how awful to get to that point where you've done so much. Look at everything that I've done, God. Look at all that I've done for you. But you miss the point. You miss the intention. Like those who are there saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miraculous things? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And what does the Lord say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. But there was something from these verses. What does Jesus say next? But a body you have prepared for me. Interesting. Keep your finger here in Hebrews 10 and go back to Psalm 40 for a moment. Think about what we've just been talking about. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And now look at Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Yeah, we heard that in Hebrews. But you have given me an open ear. Wait a second. That's not what the writer of Hebrews said, is it? You see those verses? You can flip back and forth and compare those two. Did the writer of Hebrews get it wrong when he was quoting Psalm 40? Did he miss something? How is it that Psalm 40 can say, but you have given me an open ear, and verse 5 of Hebrews 10 can say, but a body you have prepared for me. Well, I don't think the writer of Hebrews got it wrong. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Why would I say that? If you look at Psalm 40, verse 6, but this ear that you have given me, literally says, but you have dug an ear for me. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's understanding what Psalm 40 is saying. That Psalm 40, verse 6, referring back to creation, referring back to that time when God took the dust of the earth and he formed man out of that dust of the ground. And it's almost like this vivid picture as God is creating the very first man and here is this head that he has created out of the dust and now he's digging into this head, this ear, right? And what's the purpose of this ear? To hear. Why does God dig out that ear in man? So that man might hear God. And so then what? So that man might hear God and obey God. God has given you an ear to hear what he says so that you might obey him. 
And that's exactly why Jesus came, isn't it? He came to obey God. And he did obey God perfectly. He heard every word and he perfectly did every word that God said to do. And you see that in no greater place than this, but a body you have prepared for me. So there's this body that Christ has now, and this body is going to be offered as a sacrifice in obedience to God. You have prepared this body to be a body of obedience, and that means going to the cross. That means dying on the cross. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. This body of obedience is also a body of sacrifice. And this is what the true king, King Jesus, understands and does. And it's what all other kings who've come before him have missed. Saul, King Saul, back in the Old Testament, he missed it. There was a time when Saul was going to battle with the Philistines. He was waiting for Samuel to come down and offer a sacrifice before God, but He couldn't wait any longer. And so he says this in 1 Samuel 13, verses 12 through through 14. Saul said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And two chapters later, Samuel asks Saul this question. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. That is what the true king does. He obeys by becoming a sacrifice. He says to God, Behold, I have come to do your will as it is written in the book of the scroll. I believe that book of the scroll is talking about the book of Deuteronomy where God's king was to write handwritten copy of the Torah and have that next to him and to read that over and over and over again so that he would be obedient to do God's law, to be obedient to do God's word. Jesus came to sanctify us by doing God's will, by doing what God wanted and by fulfilling God's will perfectly. And lest we think that this came easily, for Jesus, let's remember that night there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And when he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Jesus came to do God's will, to be obedient to God to the point of death. And why did he do it? So you don't have to bring a lamb or a cow here today with you. So that you don't have to go to an altar and slay an animal. Jesus Christ did God's will so that the old covenant, that Old Testament law, would be, it says, done away with. So that it would be abolished. So that we are no longer looking at the blood of goats and bulls that can never take away sins. But now we have a new covenant. Jesus fulfills what we needed. He brings to pass what has been promised. And that is complete forgiveness of sin. That is why Jesus accomplished God's will. So that you might be forgiven. So that you might dwell with God, so that you might be sanctified, set apart to do the will of God. Christ's obedience is what makes it possible for you, dear Christian, to obey God. Is that your desire, sanctified one? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you praying that God's will would be done in your life? Are you praying that God's will would be done in our church? Are you praying that God's will would be done in this world? And that is a dangerous prayer. Because that means you don't get to control it. You don't get to make it happen. You don't get to orchestrate it. You're saying, God, you do your will. And might that even mean sacrifice in your own life to obey God's will? Number two, Jesus coming to sanctify arises from his sacrifice for sin. Jesus coming to sanctify arises from his sacrifice for sin. This gets down to the nuts and bolts of how Christians are sanctified. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. It highlights for us what the Bible has all along been relaying to us, that it is the Lord who sanctifies his people. Listen to this from the Old Testament, Exodus 31, 13. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Leviticus 28. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus twenty two thirty three. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Do you hear that again and again? It's the Lord who sanctifies. It's not we who sanctify ourselves. It's not we who clean ourselves up. It's not we who free ourselves from sin. If there's any way that we are going to be made holy, if there's any way that we're going to be set apart for God, if there's any way that we're going to be cleansed, it's going to be through the work of the Lord. And how marvelous it is how the Lord has done it. Through sending Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, into the world who offered himself once for all. And here is that point of emphasis. There is only one sacrifice that is needed to sanctify you. It is Christ's single, solitary sacrifice of his death upon the cross. And this is the amazing juxtaposition between Christ's work and the priest's work who were offering sacrifices. Here were the priests attending daily 
sacrifices. They were offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. You hear it in the words that come to us from these verses in Hebrews. Every priest daily at his service, repeatedly, the same sacrifices, time after time after time, again and again and again, on and on it goes, more sacrifices, more animals, more blood, until that blood becomes a raging river. And what do we say? Not working. The raging river of animals' blood can never take away your sin, can never wash you clean, can never make you holy, and has no hopes whatsoever to make you perfect. But what was it? One sacrifice, a trickle of blood that flowed from Jesus' hands, his feet, his brow, his side. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again and again. He was the perfect sacrifice, the willing sacrifice, the only sacrifice that was ever needed. And it only had to happen once. He offered it all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. And that's why I don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's a big word. I just, just dumped a lot on you right there, didn't I? Let me say something. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that when you participate in the Eucharist, the bread and the blood actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They would say that they don't teach in a re-sacrifice, but a re-representation of Jesus in the Eucharist. The problem I have with that is that when they say that, that that bread and that cup becomes Jesus' body and his blood, how can it not be a re-sacrifice? How can it not be like Christ is being sacrificed again? They consider that work an atoning, propitiatory work that is turning away God's wrath when you take that. That is a problem for me. Because what does Hebrews say? It's one sacrifice offered one time for all time. It doesn't need to happen again and again and again. That's why when we come around this table, we're not saying that these elements change into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saying this is a memorial. This is a sign of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a picture of the gospel, but it's not a re-sacrifice of Christ's death. Because it only had to happen, what does Hebrews say? One time. And that is a glorious thing. Because that is where our acceptance in God's eyes comes from. It comes from that sacrifice. Our acceptance is based on Christ's single sacrifice for all time. Where do you turn for acceptance in times of sickness or health, in times of being richer or times of being poorer, in times of trials and tribulations and sufferings and hardships, misery and despair, where do you turn in good days or in bad days, days where things go your way or days where nothing goes your way? Where do you turn in days of light or days of darkness? Where do you turn in times where you are on the mountaintops or times where you are in the darkest of valleys? Where do you turn in times of success or times of failure? Where do you turn 
in the times when you are faithfully surrounded by others or the times when you are completely alone? Where do you find acceptance in whatever time you may find yourself in? You find acceptance always in Christ, single sacrifice for all time. That means wherever you are in life, it is a sacrifice for all your sins. Every sin, past sin, present sin, future sin, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, they have all been forgiven. And when you look at Christ's sacrifice, do you not only see the great salvation But do you also see how great is his sanctification that it is by his death that you can be made holy, complete, cleansed, so that you are able to stand in the very presence of God, accepted. Number three, Jesus coming to sanctify announces his victory. Jesus coming to sanctify announces his victory. As we've been looking at this great sacrifice Christ has made in order to sanctify us, in case you missed it, Jesus has already been depicted as a priest, hasn't he? Did you notice the great contrast? Again, one more time. Every priest stands daily. His work is never done. It goes on and on, and there the priest stands. But there is another priest, a better priest, a perfect priest, a priest who is known as the great high priest, And he makes a one-time offering, a single sacrifice. He gives himself as a sacrifice for sins for all time. And then what does this great high priest do? He doesn't stand anymore as the other priest did perpetually. No, he sits down. The work is finished. There is no more sacrifice to make. There is no more sacrifice to be sacrificed. No more offering to be offered. He is the better priest, the greater priest, because his work accomplished what no other priest could accomplish. And so, with it being finished, he sat down. Notice here, there is the note, the hint of resurrection. We are told that Jesus offered his body once for all, He, he himself, is a sacrifice for our sins. That means he had to die. And die he did on that Roman cross where he breathed his last and relinquished his spirit. The question we must ask is, how can he now sit down? He's dead, isn't he? No, he rose again from the dead to show that his atonement for your sins is the perfect atonement, the only atonement that you need in order to receive eternal and resurrection life. But this sitting down is more than just relaxing. It wasn't that Jesus had had a long day at work, came home, and he collapsed in his lazy, lazy boy. No, he sat down and tells us something else about Jesus. Not only is he the great high priest, he is also the king. This sitting down was his sitting down as king. He is enthroned in the heavens at God's right hand. And he is not just any king, he is the king of kings, he is king over all, and he is the victorious king, because with with the work of this king comes the promise that one day all his enemies would be made a footstool under his feet. Here is the proclamation of victory. 
Christ is victorious over sin. Christ is victorious over death. Christ is victorious over hell. Christ is victorious over Satan. And Christ, with the certainty of these victories, he will be victorious over all of his enemies, putting them in subjection underneath his feet. Here is a clear line of demarcation. There are those who are enemies of Christ. Either you believe in Christ and trust his sacrifice, or you are his enemy, an enemy of Christ. And you will be crushed underneath his feet. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus wins in the end. This is, this is the victory that Christ brings with him. And the writer of Hebrews, like he's already done, he quotes another psalm here at the very end. Verses 13 and 14, he's quoting Psalm 110. 110, maybe you'd like to turn there with me to see this. Psalm 110, the first three verses. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did you hear in those verses the kingship of Christ, his mighty scepter, that he will rule all of his enemies? That the Lord's people, what will they do? They will offer themselves freely on that day. We will give ourselves to this king to his ways. We will live for him. We will follow him. We will die to self. We will deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And how will we offer ourselves? What does it say there? In holy garments. I am not one who understands fashion. It's a confession. I don't understand fashion. I don't understand sometimes even the purpose of Fashion, is it functional? I understand that. It's functional. I get it. But sometimes the whole world of fashion, I don't understand. And I wonder sometimes if Christians, without knowing it, can play the game of fashion. You see, it's, it's, it's easy for people in fashion to put on a dress, a set of clothes, walk down an aisle, look pretty for a few seconds and turn back and go away. I wonder if that's something that we can do. We can dress ourselves up, come in here, parade around and look good for a few minutes and then go away. That's not being dressed in holy garments. That's a fashion show. It's not the life of the believer. It's not the life of the Christian. What's the life of the Christian? Holy garments. Every day. All the time. And here is the beauty of the holy garments. You don't have to go home and 
rummage around in the back of your closet looking for those holy garments. Where do they come from? They come from Jesus Christ. He gives you the holy garments. He gives you his righteousness. He makes it so that you can stand in the very presence of God clothed in his righteousness, in his holiness, in his perfection. We do not make the garments. We do not possess them on our own. They are the very garments, the very righteousness of Christ that we are clothed with. And that is the reason why Christ has made this single offering. He made it so that people might be perfected, so that his people might be completely cleansed, so that his people might be completely righteous. That means that he died, dear Christian, so that you can be perfect. Look at what it says here at the very end. He has perfected for all time. This is not a limited perfection. This is not a perfection that comes and goes. That is not perfection. Christ has perfected his own for all time. So what are we talking about here? We are talking about definite, positional sanctification. We're talking about Christian and his position before God. Our position before God is one that is blameless, one that is righteous. In God's eyes, positionally, you are completely sanctified, completely clean, completely holy, completely perfect. How can God view you this way? Because you're clothed with Christ's holy garments through believing in his death and resurrection. But we know there's a tension here, don't we? Because we know ourselves. We know that we still sin. We know that we are not yet perfect. And it is this tension that we see in this verse. It's the tension between the already and the not yet. Already, perfected, for all time. That is our position. And it's the position that we will forever know in eternity. But we also know that we are still being sanctified. That is, there is a process working out in our lives whereby God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is so working in our hearts to conform us into the image of the Son of God. We are being sanctified, and as we are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. One day in the future, we will know full and complete perfection. But right now, as those who are set apart for God, as those who are holy, as those who are called saints, we also know that there is this sin and that we are a work in progress. And at times, at times, that can seem like a very big, big process. But take heart, dear brothers and sisters, that we are being sanctified, that Jesus Christ has even prayed for your sanctification when he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You are being sanctified and God has given you the word of truth to sanctify you. And even while you are being sanctified, you are called to pursue sanctification. It's held out before you. So many today are plagued, weighed down by decision. What does God want me to do with my life? What is God's will for my life? And I believe too many Christians are so preoccupied with God's secret will that I'm afraid that they've missed the clear and revealed will of God. And what is that? Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. 
Okay, it's very clear and very plain here. It says, for this is the will of God. And what are the next two words? Your sanctification. What is God's will for your life? Your sanctification. Your being sanctified. Your pursuing holiness. And so, dear brother and sister, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And look ahead to the future. Wait with longing expectation for that day when Christ's enemies will be crushed underneath his feet and you will behold the king and all of his beauty. That day when you will love his appearing because of the progressive work of sanctification that will be complete in your life. John says this in 1 John Three, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you long for the day when you will see Jesus Christ? Because that's the moment. You see him, you see his glory, you see his beauty, you see everything, and you will be like him. Perfect. And maybe that is the most appropriate place to end. We've seen the reasons why Jesus has come into this world, why he had to come this first time. But we end with the second advent when Christ returns. We behold his glory, and the work in us will finally be complete. Let's pray. Father, speak through your word this morning as we sang. Take its truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ has sanctified us, his followers, has cleansed us, has made us clean so that we can stand before you in full full forgiveness as those who have Christ's righteousness. And we thank you that you're continuing to do your work in us, sanctifying us day by day, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who realizes that they are not sanctified, that they have not been cleansed, that they are not holy, and that this work has not been done in them, this work has not begun in them, this work is not happening in them. That even though it's easy to pretend and put on a fashion show on Sundays, That today they would see they need the holy garments. The garments that can only come from Christ. And that those garments meet a complete and, tra- and radical transformation. So Father, use your word in us, we pray. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.